and welcome to the One Football Premier League podcast. As Manchester City don't win a game of football, Spurs are as predictable as death and taxes. Transfer gossip as we head into the last week of the transfer window will cast our eyes to an Englishman abroad, find out what happened to an ex-Manchester United player, plus plenty more as on today's podcast. Joining myself, Matt Froelich, are Dan Burke. Hello. And Lewis Ambrose. Good afternoon. I feel like I'm going to indulge myself in a little spurs pessimism here and read you this small blurb that i wrote before the chelsea game i was you know trying to get ahead of time on all the work and i thought i'm gonna i'm gonna write down here what i think's gonna happen and i wrote here <clears throat> the temptation for me to do a one-off podcast after that spurs versus leicester comeback was astonishing but then i thought i'd couple it with another spurs win versus chelsea only joking Spurs will go out with a whimper against Chelsea. How is it Spurs have so many bogey teams in the Premier League? Man City, Arsenal, Man United, Chelsea and Liverpool. Reading off that list shows me that Spurs are exactly where they're meant to be. Better than the rest of the Premier League, but never good enough to put big results together at the title challenges. So fifth to seventh is about right. <laughs> That's like your equivalent of the Brendan Rodgers names in the envelope, isn't yeah. it? I've got, I've got a team here who are going to let me down this weekend. <laughs> that was so. That's what I wrote before the, the the Chelsea game, and lo and behold, here we are. So let's dive straight in to that performance that saw Chelsea win the third of three matches against Tottenham in three weeks. Unbelievably, uh, Antonio Conte's first defeat. But before I continue my rant. Um, it seemed like a bit of a stroll in the park for Chelsea, Dan, uh, aside from the Thiago Silva moment. It was a bit, yeah. I mean, that, that moment was a little bit confusing. Uh, I thought it should have been a goal, personally, and, and that goal may very well have changed the game for Spurs. Um, but they offered pretty much nothing else apart from that in the first half. It was a reasonably even first half. I think Chelsea didn't create an awful lot themselves. Um, that kind of... Uh, Left side of, of, of Doherty and Sessegnon offered nothing for Spurs. No balls were coming into the box. Kane was getting no service. Bergvijn and Kane up front didn't seem to be working together particularly well. I mean, I don't know how you feel about Harry Winks at this point, Matt, but I'm not sure he should be a starting midfielder for a, a, a team with aspirations of the top six. Yeah. I don't really see what, it, what what his qualities are at this point, really. So, yeah, it's, it's not... I mean, it's, as you say, it's the first defeat in, what, 10 games under Conte for Spurs, first Premier League defeat, but they've not really set the world alight in those 10 games. It felt like this defeat had been coming for a little while, really. Uh, perhaps it should have come against Leicester in midweek were it not for that dramatic comeback. And I think uh, it kind of... Uh, suddenly now that, that sort of... I don't want to say in, invincibility because they were never invincible, but that aura of kind of like undefeatedness has gone. They suddenly, there's not a lot there to sort of grab hold of as, as something to be positive about Spurs at the moment, is there really? Yeah, I, I think the Harry Winks, the Harry Winks debate is something that's always going to come back and forth on the fact that he's homegrown. And I know other clubs face this as well, but there's certain leeway that gets given to homegrown players, which I think others aren't afforded. I think Jaffet Tanganga's seen that recently as well. Mm. Uh, he's been very, very poor. But when he's one of your own, you want to give him that more of a chance. Um, but yeah, like you said, the invincibility cloak is gone. Spurs horrible at Chelsea. I'm trying not to get angry about it, but Lewis, how do you think they could change things around? Because what do you make of this ease of which Spurs are dispatched of again and again in these sort of games? I think... I do think there's a, a side to it where it's just really, really hard to win these games away from home. Um I think Spurs have a pretty good record against those teams uh, at home, you know, especially against City the last few years, definitely against Arsenal, uh, beat Liverpool recently too. 
I don't think Chelsea have always seemed to have something over Tottenham, but Tottenham just cannot get a result against them. I don't. I do think you know Spurs are fine at home generally. It's away from home these games, but Chelsea, City, Liverpool—they don't really lose to anyone at home, and if they do, it's just sort of each other. Um, oh, Dan will remind us of how terrible Man City's record is going to Anfield, and uh, you know they seem to always get a result, as far as I can tell, when they go to Stamford Bridge. But likewise, Liverpool will go to City and very rarely pick up points. So I do think that's part of it. Uh, Tottenham specifically, especially right now, I just think Antonio Conte needs a bit of time. I, I think he's a brilliant, brilliant manager and more than probably pretty much any manager in the world can work with players that aren't up to the standard and, and get them playing at a level beyond their ability. But even then, even he needs three, four top-class players to be able to pull that off and... Tottenham without humans on are badly lacking in that sort of area of difference makers and players who can and turn the game on its head. And you mentioned obviously Harry Kane having his goal disallowed. He's the only one. You look at that team that started on Sunday. He's basically the only one that you'd say would get in any of those sort of other teams that are above Spurs or around Spurs in the table. That that is exactly my point that I bring up. And I think it's obviously unrealistic to try and compare full squads, but. None of the top four in England, and let's take the biggest teams around Europe, who I wouldn't say Tottenham are trying to compete on the level of, you know, Bayern, PSG, Barca, Madrid, this, that and the other. But none of them are looking at Tottenham saying, oh, I'd take that player. <laughs> none of them. Apart, apart from Kane and Son, there's none of them that would do with that. And I think that's where the difference in quality is. And you're right, Antonio Conte does need to be given quite a bit of time. And I think this this leads perfectly into my next question, Dan. He said to uh, Antonio Conte said after the defeat to be an important team, you need important players at the moment. We are far away. It takes time years. Now, I don't know about you, but you've seen football recently. Which club <laughs> has years to spare in this day and age? Is it realistic for, for him to ask for years? I don't, I don't th- I mean, reading that, it's, it's so, I don't want to say it's a cop-out from Conte, but it seems like a little bit of kind of self-preservation is going on with him already. I mean, he's already signed the, the relatively short-term contracts and you already kind of think, is he, is he in this for the long haul or is he sort of already trying to lay the blame at the fact that the, the team he's taken over wasn't built for him, which, which is true. I mean, they are lacking in lots of areas. The, there is a lack of quality aside from a couple of players that you've already mentioned for Spurs and they do, does need a lot of work to be done. But, you know, I would... Th- think a, a coach I mean should back themselves to to get some some results out of those players because there is talent there as well it's not like a complete you know shambles of a squad is it really and they should also be sending out a message to these players to kind of motivate them a little bit and I don't know if if going into a, a press conference after a game and saying you need important players and we don't have that what what are the players that are there at the moment supposed to think about that really it just seems a bit bit of an odd way to kind of manage egos to me really and I kind of wonder if if Conte is already setting up the groundwork for when it fizzles out at Spurs whenever that might be next season the season after when he ends up leaving for whatever reason to say well look what chance did I have the team was shit when I took over the the the, the money wasn't spent in the transfer market to back me what what am I supposed to do and yeah, it's just a bit of a weird, a weird reaction to me from a guy who's obviously done great things in the Premier League but hasn't done much at Spurs so far. The fact you're saying he hasn't done much at Spurs after just 10 Premier League games shows that there is no time given. Well, yeah, <laughs> you're, yeah. you're casting judgmental glasses after 10 games. 
I mean, I mean, I thought when he took over that it was he was the kind of manager that Spurs needed to kind of make them greater than the sum of their parts. That's what Spurs have been lacking mm. for a long time. And to me, yeah, I've not really seen an awful lot from him so far to suggest that he's going to do that. I've seen kind of the same level that they were performing at under under Mourinho. Really, there's not really anything to get too excited about so far, aside from the the euphoria of that that comeback at Leicester the other night. I, I did see That's... a couple of XG stats that were in our favour. Oh, that's it. <laughs> When's the parade? That's, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly the thing, Dan. Greater than the sum of their parts. Tottenham are never going to build a squad or, or a first eleven that Chelsea and Liverpool and Man City can build. So it mm. needs to come from the dugout. It needs to come from the training pitch. And we've seen Conte do that, obviously, winning the league with Chelsea a few years ago with Victor Moses playing basically every single mm-hmm. game with a bunch of players, you know, like an over-the-hill Gary Cahill playing all the time, like players that wouldn't have got in any other top team and that's exactly the point it's his job it's sort of this he he's in this awful position he's got this reputation he wants a better squad obviously he wants players to be bought this month but he's also got a reputation for getting more out of players than anyone else can so sort of the motivation for hiring him over anyone else is that you're not going to spend loads of money and replace all the players for him yeah do you think he's getting impatient mark because I remember asking you when he was appointed. He must have been appointed on the on the yeah. proviso that they were going to bring players in in January. They brought nobody in. He must be getting annoyed by that if that's the case, right? And also, I don't understand what's the point point of bringing this Paratici in as well, a, a guy whose job it is to make transfers. Like, what's he doing then? Has he just been on his phone just for to absolutely nobody? <laughs> like, you know, this is very confusing. I'm not quite sure how this double team were brought in to act if they're not being given the opportunity to. This is is what I don't understand. Um, I will end our little Spurs-Chelsea debate. For those of you who don't follow me on Twitter, all I do is rant about how annoying Spurs' records are in these particular games. So I thought I'd give you a quick update of the Premier League. Away to the traditional top four, which is Arsenal, Man United, Liverpool and Chelsea. Sorry, Dan. Um, It is now 118 away Premier League matches against those for Spurs with nine wins, 32 draws and 73 losses in 118 away games against the top four. So that... I think this is that part where you insert that clip of Giorgio Chiellini calling it the history of... That. Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly it. That, that we just, just imagine that playing over. Chiellini clearly follows me on Twitter. Right, <laughs> next up, we'll move over to Selhurst Park. Uh, besides some Crystal Palace flirting with the idea of a comeback, Liverpool looked in control for the majority here. Um, I want to get into a tactical debate with you two. How best, if you're a coach, are you trying to combat one of the opposition's most creative forces when that force comes from left back. Uh, Andy Robertson here with two assists. I'm wondering how you would go about it, Lewis. Left back after in midweek, I think their Liverpool's best player against Arsenal was Trent Alexander-Arnold yeah. at right back. <laughs> we'll go full <laughs> to, back to, to get them to Wembley. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's basically impossible. I think you see it. I think you see Man City, the only team that consistently give Liverpool a really good game um, and Man City basically do it by not letting the other team have the ball. Um, <laughs> I think it's pretty much the only way and you, as we all know, Liverpool can go and win the ball back better than basically any other team on the planet. So, yeah, I, I, it's basically impossible, right? If you spend too much time focusing on shutting down the wings and, and Alexander-Arnold and Robertson, especially when they've got Mane and Salah in front of them, then you've got to worry about Fabinho and Curtis Jones and Thiago killing you through the middle of the pitch. So it's an absolute nightmare. And 
Liverpool again and again have have used the fullbacks. How many assists it is over the past few years now? But way more than we've ever seen in in Premier League history, getting assists from those fullbacks, getting up and down the flanks, and basically playing like wingers in the nineties. The two of them, it's incredible. How would you How would you try, Dan? I think Lewis is right there. It's pretty much impossible. I mean, I remember we City played Liverpool in the Champions League uh, Anfield a few years ago, got beat three nil, and. Guardiola's big idea was to play Ilkay Gundogan as a right winger to kind of stop them breaking against us and it went horribly. Um, I think you just have to kind of hope and pray that they're, they're going to have bad games and hope that you can have someone who will who will sort of catch them on the counter-attack and, and make them a little bit less reluctant to get forward, I guess, really. But um, I think that kind of is happening with Liverpool a bit at the moment as well. I mean, I, I watched this game, they, they did dominate it and, and kind of deserve to win, but they do look like they could be got at defensively, Liverpool. I think a couple of years ago they had... Van Dijk in such incredible form that no one was sort of getting past him. But now they look like they could be played through a little bit more Liverpool and, and can be can be caught out a little bit when those fullbacks bomb forward. So that, that's your best hope, really. I, think. I, I, I was so determined to find an answer. I was tempted to get football manager, play against Liverpool as many times as I could just to try and figure out how to do it. Because I was watching <laughs> the... the uh, who scored the second? Oxley chamberlain So Liverpool have got the ball on the right-hand side. And from that position, you think... Right, you know what? We'll pick up man for man on the right-hand side. Andy Robertson's free on the other side of the pitch at left-back. But that's miles away from where the action is. We'll keep him free. If they get out of it, fair play to them. We'll move over when they switch it. They switch it, he's free, he crosses it, goal. And there's, there's nothing you can do. I mean, like Lewis said, there's no way you'd employ a right winger to be marking their left-back. First thing, that's ridiculous. You just end up like with a back six, right? When you do that on both sides. Exactly. (laughs) And secondly, if... But this is what I mean. This is when Robertson's from deep. I'm not talking about him getting to the byline. I'm talking about where he crossed it from for that Oxlade-Chamberlain goal, which is, you know, quite a a way back that... You're right. If you put a right winger to say, right, I'm going to stop Robertson crossing it, you're then leaving your right back in a one-on-one situation with potentially Mane, which has also got Nightmare written all over it. So... If anyone out there has got a, a, a very good idea of how to stop fullbacks being creative forces, um, tweet us for the love of God. Tweet it's got, us. Got to be the old Stuart Pearce tactic, I guess. Let them know you're there early with <laughs> rock hard tackle in the first minute of the game and hope they don't want to run past you again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's not going to happen today. Not with VAR. Not with VAR. <laughs> and we will move on to the VAR drama of this one, of course. That was a little segue I just thought of right now. Um, Dan, where do you stand on that penalty decision? Because it looked to me as if, though, he missed the ball and momentum took him into the goalkeeper, Diego Jota. Yeah, I didn't think it was a penalty. I could kind of see why it was given because when I saw it in real time, I thought, oh, that looks like a penalty to me. And he he has kind of, in, in a sense, moved a little bit towards Jota in a way, kind of pushed him over, whatever you want to call it. Um, what I found confusing about it was the fact the referee saw it in real time, didn't think it was a penalty, and then checked the monitor and decided it was a penalty. I don't see what clear and obvious wrong decision had been made there that he felt the need to overturn that. Surely the on-field decision should stand in that case, as we see all the time, and that that is supposed to be the procedure, that if the referee's on-field decision is, is about right and there's nothing clear and obvious that means it should be a penalty, then it should stand. So, yeah, I don't get it. This is what I don't understand, is that if it was clear and obvious and he's made a mistake, then fair enough. But if it's something that he's seen and he thought, you know what, that's not obvious enough for me, then you're right, it should, it should be play on. I, I don't get... It, it, it can't be to the point where this video assistant referee is giving decisions because then it's like having another referee. 
then you might as well have the ref sitting with them in Stotley Park, you know, and a cup of tea and some biscuits watching the TV. <laughs> What's Which the point is probably a more logical way to do it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it probably is, because I don't understand how this, the referee can't be making decisions that the assistant referee, that the actual referee hasn't seen. It, mm. it blows my mind. What did you think, Lewis? <clears throat> the same, the same. <laughs> if it's like, these are apparently the guidelines that is clear and obvious, which... Like the whole point, right, is to not have massive, massive mistakes that, that are costly for teams or relegation or mm. getting into a, a European spot and that sort of thing. And this wasn't a huge mistake. Like that's the, Those should be the only times that we see things overturned. If it's like really obvious that the refs made the wrong decision. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think if we went back, or well, I say go back to that, we haven't really had that. If that was, that was what it was sort of sold to us as, and if it was actually used that way and used a lot more sparingly, then we all might not mind about VAR too much. It's only sort of the really, really bad decisions that get mm. overturned. But now it feels like we, we get a check now for every single penalty appeal and every single sort of slightly over-the-top tackle and not the ones that, you know that are so, so badly missed where you're left scratching your head at how the refs missed it. But ones that sort of, if no one had ever, if the play had just gone on, and no replays or anything, no one would be saying after the game, oh, how bad was that decision? Like, those are the only ones really that should be being checked. But it's like every single game, there are two, three, four penalty appeals or red card, possible red cards that get checked. And it's way too much for me. I, I, I think it's now because the players know they can win these things. The players now know that any sort of contact, it's worth it. It's worth the shout, as, as the old saying goes, because you might get a penalty out of something a bit dodgy. So it's, it's probably it's probably tilting the game in a, in a worse direction. And I think the referees yeah. have a hard enough job as it is. And you, you have players looking for penalties yeah, more exactly. than ever, I think, as well. They're, mm. they're sort of looking for that contact, leaving a leg dangling or mm. that sort of thing, and then going down a lot easier to try and make it look like it was a bit more than it was. Because, like you say, they know that it's going to get checked and they've got a chance of getting it. Yeah. yeah. Well, there is more uh, more on the VAR situation down at St. Mary's. But we'll start actually with Southampton. Uh, the one or draw with Manchester City means they haven't lost to the champions this season, are unbeaten in the last eight home games with just one home loss all season. Is this creating the sense of a, a draw or a power that they can keep their best players and build something? Or are they still in the position where they'll sell their stars and then they have to build all over again, Lewis? I guess that's down to the new ownership and how sort of ambitious they're going to be. Do they see Southampton as sort of the way that Villa see, clearly are trying to run their club and the way that Leicester try and run the club as sort of... I think those clubs, West Ham, maybe you can put there as well, Wolves. I think all those teams fancy themselves as teams that can sort of catch Tottenham and Arsenal and Man United and compete for those top European spots and maybe the Champions League even on, on sort of a really good year. Leicester for obvious reasons, but Villa are showing that sort of ambition now as well. Southampton could show that and if they do then fine like you know you refuse to sell players or only sell for for top dollar look Salisu was brilliant in this oh, game unbelievable uh, yeah unbelievable. he's you know definitely um, the best player but definitely the best defensive player on the pitch and sort of the, the guy who kept Southampton ahead for so long so, yeah, I mean, I think a few years ago we'd have seen this Southampton side if he can put in performances like that regularly then sort of 30, 40, 50 million had come their way and they're just selling without hesitating. 
are they going to try and get him to sign a new deal now, like they like they've done with James Ward-Prowse when there was some interest in him in the summer? Are they going to try and keep players, and then are they going to try and improve on players as well? Because you know we spoke about it a bit last week. There's not enough ability there for Southampton to finish. You know, sort of. I think top top half. I think like mid table is mm. like absolutely their limit with this team. They're going to need three, four, five players of, of real quality to go much further beyond that next season. And uh, moving on to what was definitely one of the more contentious points in the game. Uh, is proof of injury a reason to red card a player, Dan? This one I thought was interesting. The reason I asked is because Stuart Armstrong, upon review, only got a yellow for his high boot on Eimerick Laporte. Um, <laughs> but the defender's thigh told a different story after the game. Uh, according to VAR, this was the word, it was lacking intensity. Almost <laughs> as if there was like a, a thirst for more blood. Like, you know what? I can't see I can't see the inside of his leg, so it's not a red. <laughs> he still had a leg after it. Yeah. Wow, what's he moaning about? Yeah. I mean, I, I've said many times on this podcast, the point that it's probably boring people to death now, but I do think there are too many red cards in, in football. I think there should be perhaps something between a red and a yellow card and maybe that one would fall into the category. I think it was accidental um, and, and not really malicious, probably not malicious at all. Having said that, I do think you have to kind of draw a line somewhere. And to me, planting your studs into another player's leg possibly should be a red card offence. There was one in the, the Spurs-Chelsea game as well, um, Doherty on Malangsar, yeah. I think it was in the first yeah, half. I thought that was that was a bit naughty as well. Again, accidental, but still not great. So I was a bit surprised that, that Armstrong didn't get sent off. It was a pretty nasty looking cut that Laporte had on his leg afterwards. Um, and it's funny about VAR, there was an interesting little incident in, the, in this game with VAR where they were checking for a little trip on De Bruyne um, for a p- potential penalty for about two or three minutes at oh, one yeah, point. yeah, they were. And, uh, and it was one of those where the game had gone on for a couple of minutes before they then pulled it back to have a look at it. And they decided in the end that it was outside, it was a foul, but it was outside the box. But City didn't then get a free kick because they don't check for free kicks. They only check for penalties. So I it's thought like, that. Oh yeah, it's a, fa- it's a foul, but we'll just play on now. It was it's a like, throw to Southampton, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So again, it's just another another little like obvious flaw in the in the in the protocol of VAR that I don't understand. Yeah, I, I begrudgingly say we're going to have to get used to it because I think now you can't go back. We, we've opened the can of worms of VAR. I can't imagine I mean, I, them scrapping I'm, it. I'm totally at the point with it now, where and it's probably easy for me to say, given that my team are, you know, streaks ahead at the top of the league at the moment and, and having a great time, but. It's never going to be perfect and it should mm. never have been sold to us that it was going to be perfect and people are going to make mistakes. VAR is not a person. It's a it's a computer that is designed to help referees, people come to the right decisions. They're not going to make the right decision all the time and sometimes you just have to accept that and accept that, you know, shit's going to go against you sometimes and sometimes it'll go for you and that's football, isn't it, at the end of the day? Well, I must admit that... Uh... No VAR was going to save Watford on Friday night as we move on to <laughs> Vicarage Road. I will hold my hands up and say I usually talk badly about Norwich every season. I just think you've come up and you've not really done much. But two wins on the bounce, three against Watford. Um, they're out of the relegation zone. What is Dean Smith doing right, in your opinion, Lewis? Because he's done something. I don't know how much I'd say that on Friday Dean Smith did things right or Dean Smith was just playing against Watford. Um, <laughs> oh, no brutal. Offense, no, no offence to Norwich, uh, who obviously couldn't buy a win uh, for the for the first half of the season, pretty much. And now, yeah, two on the two on the bounce is is great. One 
against Ever- like you can't take anything away from Norwich, but the first against like the most dire Everton team, mm. um, and then this one against Watford, who are, <laughs> are going to set a record for number of defeats without sacking a manager if Claudio Ranieri lasts much longer. I don't really get it. Um, how he's still in the job, to be honest, uh, especially given Watford's usual eagerness to just move on and try something different. Norwich, I don't know. I I, I don't see much quality there still. Um, you know, Josh Sargent's first goal aside, but you, you play enough Premier League games, one of them will end in back of the net eventually. <laughs> It was uh, a scorpion kick, mate. It, it was a great goal. Yeah, you it try it long really enough, it, it was like work. a lovely, lovely <laughs> instinct. Um, it was a really nice goal, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, it was a big win, obviously coming against a relegation rival. But I kind of look at Newcastle's result at Leeds and Burnley getting a point at Arsenal, and I still come away from the weekend wondering if it was actually a bad one for Norwich on the whole. <laughs> With, with those two teams both picking up points in, in tougher games than Watford away? Um, I think the the question, you've, you've, you've asked it there, Lewis, but we'll put it to Dan. How long does Ranieri have? I would say probably not very long. I'm surprised he's not been sacked already, actually, because you would think that would be the final nail in the coffin, losing 3-0 to Norwich. It should be just an instant dismissal, shouldn't <laughs> it, really? Um, with all due respect to Norwich. But, I mean... Maybe Watford's owners are now thinking, well, is this policy actually working for us, this, this hiring and firing managers all the time? Because they did this last time they were in the Premier League and it didn't work. They you know, got Nigel Pearson in to kind of rescue them, sacked him with, what, two games to go, was it? And got mm. Hayden Mullins in and, and still went down. Maybe they're just thinking now, well, let's just see how it goes with Ranieri. He might keep us up. Uh, we might go down. If we go down, we'll sack him at the end of the season and, and start again in the in the championship. But it, it seems like a bit of a waste to me because I think they've got some decent players there at Watford. And I think Watford fans might disagree with me that they were doing kind of okay under, under Zisco, the previous manager, and probably, I don't know, probably, but might have stayed up under him anyway. And... They just there was all this upheaval in the middle of the season, and for what really? They had a couple of good results, you know. They beat United at home. That was a, a good performance from them. But yeah, I, I don't have much hope for them at the moment at all. They just it looks very bleak for them. I I would say that it is worth sticking with Ranieri, just to see what he can kind of conjure up with all of his experience. Because you often see teams, maybe not January. I'm looking toward early March. You know when a team is really down there and they sack their manager and they bring in. They bring in a bit of a younger manager with one eye on getting back up the next season. They've always got an idea. Fulham did it with Scott Parker. They thought, you know what? He'll take us down. He'll be better off for the experience that he's the guy to get us back up first time. I think a few teams do that. I'm not sure Ranieri's the guy to stick around and bring them back up from the championship, though. So they might as well stick with him. I mean... I think I find more more than ever this season. I think that people are talking in like these weird absolutes about things. Like the title race is over. It's fucking January. Like calm down. It's not over. Watford are going down. The two points from safety. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know whether they've got enough about them to consistently get results to keep them up. But the, the one win away from being out of the relegation zone. I mean, you're looking at Norwich now and thinking Norwich might stay up. We we you know. Gave them the kiss of death ages ago and said they were going down, and now That's they're out true. of the relegation zone. So it could all change around, and I, I don't really, I don't really see who they bring in at Watford at this point. That's going to be any guarantee of anything, really. You think a guy who won the Premier League a few years ago will probably be the best bet? So yeah, maybe stick with him. 
Rafa Benitez. I'm calling it now. Uh, <laughs> two Rafa's. That's, that's what they need a firefighter. Where's Sam Allardyce? <laughs> yeah. Oh god. You just know he's waiting as well. Uh, actually, we're talking about Rafa's former club next. We'll go to Everton. This this is something I passionately dislike about modern day football coaching, and it's people like Duncan Ferguson. Even though I do like him as a player, he said. His, his quote from after the game as they lost 1-0 to, uh, to Steven Gerrard's Aston Villa, I was kicking every ball out there, trying my best to motivate the team and trying to get them across the line. This just seems to me that this phrase, along with the idea of passion and heart and you know him bleeding Everton, you cut him open and blue runs out, is this actually going to help them win football matches? Or should we say, you know what, you can shout and scream at them and be as passionate as you like, but you actually need some coaching. <laughs> Otherwise, they're just going to end up running in circles. They got across the line. They just got across the line second. That's the Villa beat them to it. So, yeah, I mean, it didn't do much. Right. Um, did you see this thing about the pubs as well, or the pubs around Goodison Park? Uh, Duncan Ferguson rang them all up on I don't know when um, I saw it on BT talking about before the game he rang all the pubs around Goodison Park and said that everybody's first drink was on him um, <laughs> he just sort of paid for everybody's first drink yeah. in all the pubs around the ground uh, before the game uh, again obviously d- didn't do much somebody threw theirs at Luca Dean so <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah Luca's uh, Dean. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, obviously didn't pay off. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I agree, obviously, completely, Matt. You, Everton need more than... You, you might as well go get an, an Everton fan season yeah, yeah, exactly. or something. If, if the idea is that you can just shout at the players and really try and inspire them and tell them how much it means and stuff like that, and that that might be able to turn things around. Four four two. stick the two big lads up front, pump it towards yeah. them. It was Duncan Ferguson football. I know. Uh, yeah, they they definitely going to need a lot more than that to turn things around, and I'm sure he won't last. Not not that he's like on probation or anything for 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 getting the job, but I'm sure that they'll get a manager in as quickly as possible, especially without any games next week, and they've got sort of a free weekend to now have a, like a little run into the next Premier League game on the training ground. Surely they get somebody in now in the next few days to to give them that, give them the opportunity to start turning things around. I, I've just I've seen it and I think we've seen it recently that Oligana Solskjaer, this this bring back the feel good factor, you know, this pay for everyone's pint. It's a load of rubbish. <laughs> uh, honestly <laughs> Drives me crazy. I thought you were going to say they should hire Ollie for a second. No, 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 absolutely not. (laughs) Honestly, I just, I saw it at Tottenham with Tim Sherwood. Right, say, oh, he's brilliant. You know, he's he's no nonsense. He tells them some home truths. I just skip all the crap. You're not a captain anymore. You're not geeing up people on the pitch by smashing your head against the dressing room door before you leave for the tunnel, right? You need some sound tactical advice and an idea of how to win football matches. And yeah, just shouting at people and telling them how hard you used to be or how much passion you used to give it back in the day is not going to get you there. So um, you'd love to say though, I, I... go on, go on, Dan. I was going to say, say I was. A... <laughs> oh, <laughs> after after you, I insist. You'd love Tim Sherwood to get the Everton job now, though, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. That's all I wanted to say. 
<laughs> I was going to say, I was at a City game uh, many, many years ago now uh, against Everton when, when Duncan Ferguson was uh, playing for Everton at the time. He was on the bench, he was warming up in front of us and he had like a bandage on his hand. And some guy shouted from the crowd, Oi, Ferguson, is that a wanking injury? And the stare that he gave this guy could have melted ice. <laughs> so if he's, given, if he's given those stares in the dressing room, I think the players would be too terrified to perform, to be honest with you. I don't know I, I just, uh, I just if think... you can scare Premier League footballers into performing. The game's though, moved on a bit. Imagine, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that there's a difference, but imagine someone who doesn't maybe know Duncan Ferguson, know his history, know the Premier League so well, maybe a foreign player that's come in. They're not going to get it. They're just going to think, mm. why is this guy staring at me? What's he shouting who, who about? Who are Everton going to appoint then? That's what I want to know. Because <sighs> I've heard some talk about Jose Mourinho and I'm, I mean, that no, is, I, I think, that's a I Sinai think, pill, isn't it, basically? What he, are you doing? Yeah, he's, 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 I think he's distanced himself with that one. With, uh, with the job he's doing at Roma. I, I think they're in a very tough position because they definitely do not want to give it to um, uh, uh, a sort of a project manager at this point. Because if that goes wrong, you go down. I think they have to go with someone safe who's going to keep them up and then they can build on from the summer. Because they're getting dragged into it at the minute. They're dragged into it and it's... Uh, yeah, it's not looking so good. Uh, moving on though, from 1-1-0 one, one, to the next uh, Old Trafford... Manchester United in the final minute. Uh, you know, I think we're going to skip the VAR talk because I'm sick of it. And I saw loads <laughs> of replays. and they It was drew, pretty conclusive in the end. Yeah, they drew the line onside, and it yeah. looked onside. Um, but the thing that struck me the most was the lack of quality in the final third for both teams, especially when you consider the talent United have. Uh, there was 24 shots combined in this match. Only four of them hit the target and one went in. Um <laughs> And I think, look, when you look at a United side that finished the game with Ronaldo, Fernandez, Cavani, Martial and Rashford all on the pitch. At this point, Dan, do we applaud Randick for really going for it? Or does it scream a lack of ideas and I'm just going to throw on everybody and see <laughs> and hope that we could score? I mean, it worked, didn't it? So you can't, you can't argue with it, really. What I find quite baffling about United, among the many things that I find baffling about United in, in recent years, is the sort of the way they've used Edison Cavani since signing him. Like I thought he was brilliant for them at times, particularly towards the back end of last season. Obviously he's the wrong side of 30, but he looks like he's still got quite a lot to offer to me. And even before they brought Ronaldo in, there was some talk of him leaving, um, of him not being sort of part of the the, the the main plans of, of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at the time and being a, a first-team player. And even so, he's like, whenever he comes into the game, whenever he starts a game, he seems to have a positive influence on the game. He set up the goal really well mm. in this one. I think playing Edison Cavani would make them a much better team, but you know, Ronaldo being there means you can't do it very often. Um I just, there's just, they've got quality there. Those players you listed, there's a lot of quality in that team. Um, but not, none of the last couple of managers or going back to Mourinho even, I've, I've really worked out the best formula up front. I just find it very strange that they've spent so much money on all those players and just don't have a, an idea of how to kind of use them and who, who the best options are really. Yeah, it's, it seemed to me that idea of getting rid of Cavani was certainly not committing him to a long-term contract. Bringing in Sancho and van der Beek, United were like, right, this is it. Bring in the youngsters, we're taking a step towards the future. Then the second they signed Ronaldo, it all kind of took it back again. And you think, oh, are we actually building for the future if we just bought in a 36-year-old? Nothing against Ronaldo because he's been brilliant and scored a ridiculous amount of goals. But I still feel like Cavani must be sitting there thinking, well, hold on, I was a bit too old last season. 
Yeah. Right? And I'm two years younger than I'm younger than, than him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, precisely. Um, and, uh, yeah. I think even, and Cavani even, he, you see it with this assist and stuff like he's so selfless in his running. He will bring those young players on more than Ronaldo, who apparently at Brentford the other day asked why a younger player wasn't subbed when he was subbed off. Um, <laughs> you know, sat down through a bit of a sulk. Like mm. Cavani seems like the model professional, but also the just the sort of character, the the sort of teammate that will help those younger players actually kick on a lot more than Ronaldo does or will. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the young players that could be at Manchester United actually was on the other team this weekend in Declan Rice. I'm sure many clubs are still going to look at him. Um, as for West Ham, though, Moyes' run of away games. We talk about Spurs being poor away from home. David Moyes has not won away at a big six team in 45 matches. Is this going to be standing between West Ham and the top four, Lewis? Or do you think they can do it with a couple of signings? I, I think I think you're you were right last week, Matt, on what's going to get in West Ham's way. I think the squad is definitely a problem, but the games that they've dropped points to sort of Brentford and Brighton and lost to Leeds last week. I think Southampton they lost to at, at home as well. I think you can take these defeats at United and at Arsenal if you're making sure you're picking up the points in those games that that you really should be winning or where they're considered favourites. Uh, ultimately, that's I think that and having a bit too small of a squad to cope with the European football and Premier League games at the same time is is what's going to cost them sort of that that shot of getting into the Champions League. Yeah, I I, I would suggest so, especially because when you do drop points to those teams, they're direct rivals as well. They're direct rivals. They're they're pulling ahead with a few more points. Um, next up, and to Brentford against Wolves. I must admit, sorry to Wolves fans last week when I said they didn't quite know what to say. They were just sort of there. <laughs> they were just sort of in between. And I've done it again this 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 week. It's four wins in the draw in the last five for Wolves, right? The, the joint best form in the Premier League along with Manchester City. Uh, a pretty good win at Brentford, despite the fact the game was stopped for a drone, a clash of heads, faulty wiring on the referee's part, and, uh, and some substitutions and, of course, a couple of goals as well. Um, I said I really didn't know what to comment and I looked at this game, I looked at the match stats and it just, I've never seen a match that was so perfectly reflected in the stats. The possession was equal. Brentford had a shot on target and a goal. Wolves had two shots on target and two goals, uh, not including, <laughs> including Traore's offside. So I'm at a loss again. I don't quite know what to talk about. They're just sort of, <laughs> they're there, they're doing very well actually. Very unassuming I think is the word. Um, from Brentford's end, though, do you think they'll get dragged into this relegation battle or will they be okay, Dan? I mean, they've pl- played more games than anyone else in the bottom nine, um, but are eight points clear of the drop zone. They'll be okay, I think. I thought pretty early in the season that they looked like they were going to be pretty comfortable this year and they've been a little less comfortable than I thought they would be. And I think Thomas Frank has gone from this kind of nice, if slightly eccentric uh, guy that he was at the start of the season to a little bit a little bit chippy now. Uh, he was a bit chippy after the United game in midweek, wasn't he? Where he came out sort of all guns blazing in the in the post match and was saying we were better than them. We didn't deserve to lose that, which I think was probably fair to be honest. Um, but then he gets sent off at the end of this game for going on the pitch and remonstrating with the referee. And I don't know what you put that down to, really. I don't think he's feeling any pressure. I just think they're in a bit of a bad patch. Perhaps he doesn't really know how to get them out of it. I think losing David Rea, their goalkeeper, earlier in the season really, really hurt Brentford. I don't think um, 
I don't think Fernandez, Alvaro Fernandez, the guy they brought in, is quite as good. I don't think uh, Ivan Tony has kind of really um, lit up the Premier League in the way that perhaps we thought he would in the in the early weeks of the season. But overall, I think they're doing okay. I think they'll be they'll be all right. They'll they'll probably finish kind of lower mid table, fourteenth, um, fifteenth around that around that sort of place. And you'd have to say that's a successful first season back in the Premier League. Back in the Premier League for Brentford. <laughs> In in the Premier League, <laughs> in the Sorry, Premier yeah. League, never, they've never been in the yeah, you know. What I, mean. <laughs> I know. Oh, look at me calling you out now. Um, no, it was. Uh, I actually thought the thing is with them is that we'll probably say this about every single other team. You could probably apply the same to Leeds, who we'll get onto now, but Everton as well. There's going to be three worse teams than them. That's it. There's going to be three yeah. worse teams than Brentford. Um, but. Talking of Newcastle. There's going to be about four or five yeah. worse teams than them, I think, <laughs> yeah, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the two Derby's great escape is on. I gave them a uh, little chance, to be honest. But with playing Leeds, who are the the uh, the inconsistent kings this season, this result seems plausible beforehand. It actually came to fruition uh, just barely a week after beating West Ham 3-2 away. Newcastle took all three points from Ellen Road. And in the last three, they are unbeaten with five points. Um an interesting one, I think, in the transfer windows we head into the last week, Lewis. Do you think Newcastle buying more signings and having to let them find their feet could be a bit more detrimental than allowing this current team who are settling into some sort of rhythm to continue their good form? I think I think one or like two more signings. There was a lot of talk, obviously, a month ago and you know, fantasies that Newcastle will build an entire new 11 in this one transfer window, which is completely <laughs> absurd and was never going to happen. They were going to have Coutinho and Hazard on the wings and stuff like that. Um, obviously not. Uh, and obviously that that it would be detrimental. I think having this team find their feet a little bit, but adding a couple more faces in this next week before the transfer window closes would be ideal you look at you look at the attacking options you still don't see many goals I don't think um, Joe Linton is probably playing the best football of his Newcastle career in more of a midfield role if they could sign a midfielder you know John Joe Shelby obviously scored the winner in this one but if they could sign a midfielder who would displace him or, or Longstaff and play sort of every game or if they could sign a centre-back who is more reliable and just has more quality than, than Fabian Cher and Jamal Lascelles then I think they'd have to do that. I think those are the sort of signings. It's almost the spine of the team. You know, someone in the final third as well who creates or gets on the end of things because right now it is still, obviously I've signed Chris Wood, but it's still mostly Alan Saint-Maximin who provides some sort of threat. One attacking player, one defensive player, whether that be, you know, an attacking midfielder or a winger, if it's a holding midfielder or a centre-back, I think... If they add those two sort of pillars to the team, then there's definitely enough here. It, yeah, four, five, six more signings. I think you're starting to talk about it being an issue for them. If they add one or two really good players before this window closes, then that's probably going to be enough. They are linked with a with a crazy, a crazy amount of players. Which one do you see coming off? I know we had a, a tip for it a couple of weeks back, Dan, but do you actually see anyone... Of interest joining Newcastle in the last week? 
I don't know. Well, there was a report I read earlier where it said they still want six players before the transfer window. It's like, I feel sorry for their social media people <laughs> if that's the case. Yeah, yeah, they're going to be busy, aren't they? Um, I, the, the, that talk about... Because um, I, th- I think they have been reasonably clever in some of the players that they've targeted and they haven't gone for kind of really obvious names and just thrown money at it. They have gone for kind of smart targets, it seems. So that one, Diego Carlos from Sevilla that was floating mm. around last week. I don't know I don't know what status that is now, whether it's completely off the table or whether it's still a, still a possibility. But I thought a couple of years ago, at least, he looked quality and he, he'd be a good addition. And they've been linked with their Badia Shile from Monaco as well, haven't they? Who's, who's a bit younger. I think a centre-back is a must for them, really. I think they really need someone to, to tighten up that defence and, and kind of lead the back four because they're lacking in that, that department. So mm. one of those two will be my bet. And interesting one, I've heard them linked with a lot of goalkeepers. I, I, didn't, I wouldn't really have said that that was a priority for them. I, I would have thought Dubravka was good enough really but I don't know I heard they've been linked with Burned Leno and I'm kind of like well what's mm. the point like yeah, is he much better yeah, than what they've got already that's yeah. why I think it's not a massive step up Leno I think mm. is better but it's not it's not of of grave importance at the minute with mm. with a week to go it's not where they should be yeah. maybe focusing their attention and their time yeah no I think that seems a bit too yeah it, it seems James like one Tarkovsky is yeah. another one been talked about as well. Oof, I'm not sure Sean Dyche going to answer the phone to anyone from Newcastle <laughs> after the Chriswood debacle. Um, but actually, talking of Burnley, their first Premier League game in three weeks. They are part <laughs> of this Premier League season. They do get to play games like the rest of us. Um, it actually looks like the rest did them okay. Um, defensively, certainly. Mikel Arteta said after their nil-all draw against Arsenal at the Emirates that we tried many ways to attack. Burnley want to play a slow game. It takes long. It's their game and you have to respect that. He, he don't respect it. He's just spent three lines saying, if you're reading in between the lines, that they're not a very good footballing team. Um, but does Arteta have enough of a plan B for these games, Lewis? Or is the squad not diverse enough for that yet? Uh, I think the squad, and I think especially the squad right now. I mean, obviously we had Arsenal two weeks ago had their Premier League game against Spurs called off. Oh, sorry, last weekend mm. had their game against Spurs called off. Um, then in midweek against Liverpool with players who just weren't fit and hadn't played for a couple of weeks. You know, Smith Rowe and Odegaard, or Smith Rowe uh, rushed back into the team. Um, Tommy Yasu rushed back into the team and then actually worsened his own injury. And then Smith Rowe added to the team for this weekend, having just recovered from coronavirus. And then you looked at the bench yesterday, and I mean, yeah, I'm actually just going to get it quickly and read out the bench yesterday. Um, <laughs> because as non Arsenal fans, I'd love to know how many mm. players you guys have heard of beyond you know, Burnt Leno, Nuno Tavares, Callum Chambers, Eddie Nketiah, who's the only player who was used, yeah. uh, and then Ryan Alabiusu. Mika Beerith, Salah Ulad Mahand, Amari Hutchinson, and Charlie Patino were the were the subs. So I don't know if I'd say a, a Plan B issue. Full or... internationals, them lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was waiting for you to say Danny Carbassioun then or something. <laughs> What's he up to these days? <laughs> He's he works for the club as a scout. He probably found half of them. Does he? Oh, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think you you know you look at Smith Rowe before Christmas had three or four Premier League games in a row when he came off the bench and and scored, and there was just nothing like that yesterday. The only sub was Eddie Nketiah replacing Smith Rowe. Obviously, Jacker and Party were both suspended. Tommy Asu was was out injured. Aubameyang is in the situation that he's in right now. Nicola Pepe is away at the African Cup of Nations, and ultimately, there's just 
nobody uh, nobody else in the squad that Arsenal could turn to when the, they needed a goal. This was my key question then for you, and I think for all Arsenal fans. At this point, I think it's how many games without a Premier League goal uh, or without it's a goal four, even? Four in all competitions. Right, yeah. four in all competitions. Would you bring Aubameyang back into the first team now? I think if Arsenal don't sign a striker this in this next yeah. week, then we'll see Aubameyang play for Arsenal again this season um, because I don't see the club having much choice in top four. It's on the line. Um, and I mean, if you look at the table right now between Arsenal, Spurs and United, discounting West Ham just for a second because I think they have fallen off a, a little bit and with the Europa League games, they will fall away a little bit more. Um, but there's nothing between Arsenal, Spurs and United at the moment. For, for fourth and West Ham as well, if you want to throw them in there. So a striker is an absolute necessity. You just said, I think it's, it's either four or five games uh, mm. in a row in all competitions without scoring a goal for Arsenal now. It, that's where the problems are. I think it's the team don't concede too many goals or, or keep enough clean sheets, if you want to put it that way instead. It's whether or not there's somebody to create something out of nothing to score a goal or get on the end of something. It's not something Alexandre Lacazette does enough. He's not mm. going to score the number of goals Arsenal need to finish in the top four this season. So I think all focus the next week will be on signing a striker. And if that doesn't happen, I don't see the club having much choice, but trying to find a way to get Aubameyang back in the team at some point. He's going to come back, sign a few goals, and another three-year deal will be on the table for him. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be having this conversation in a few years. Uh, moving on to Burnley, though, who I thought defended very, very well. I thought Pope, especially in goal, was brilliant. Um, they've obviously lost Chris Wood to to Newcastle. Maxwell Corne is actually uh, at the African Cup of Nations with Nicola Pepe as well, like Lewis mentioned, with Ivory Coast. They managed to get a point, and... I'm trying to think of now which kind of area or which demographic almost of signing are they trying to get to help them with a relegation fight? Who comes in now that doesn't want to risk being relegated with the club, but is also of good enough standing and quality to help them get out of it? Because I know there's games in hand, but we always say points on the board better than games in hand. They are bottom at the minute and things are looking, especially you know if Norwich continue this form um, and Newcastle too, it's looking a little bit more serious. It's looking very serious, yeah. I'm, I'm really, really, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm not worrying too much. I'm not losing sleep over it. But if I was a Burnley fan, I'd be very worried about their their, their survival hopes at this point. Um, obviously, they've got a few games in hand, but losing Chris Wood was a big one. They're going to have to replace those goals somehow because I don't think Jay Rodriguez and Matej Vidra are going to cut it, are, are going to score the goals they need. Ashley Barnes, I don't think he's fit at the moment. Um I, and, and they're not being linked with a great deal of players at the moment either. Mm. I've read before there's some guy from uh, Lorient in France that's looking at Armand Loriente, which is uh, a good name. I mean, he might be the he might be the next Thierry Henry. I mean, if he was, I don't think he'd be going to Burnley to be perfectly honest. But they they need they need a, a proven quality Premier League quality, whatever you want to call it, striker, don't they really? And I don't really see who they're going to get. I think keeping hold of players, uh, keeping hold of like Tarkovsky who I don't think has had an amazing season for them, actually, but I think he's, he's he, he was he was good yesterday. That's probably going to be more crucial to Burnley, just keeping those group of players together, because attracting players has always been difficult for Burnley. It's, it's an unfashionable club, very unfashionable club. It's, you know, not the most attractive part of the country to live in. The style of football doesn't, uh, you know, get mm. the, the kids on the streets of Barcelona's pulses racing, does it? So, um, 
they're going to struggle. I think they're going to struggle a lot, and I I would fancy them to go down at this moment in time. They're they're probably the, the team that I would say is most likely to go down in the Premier League. So what you're saying is rebranding, new new football club de Burnley, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Spruce it up a bit, get them some stripes, get them a nice few players playing good football, and people will suddenly find them attractive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder with Sean Dyche as well what a relegation to Burnley does to his reputation, because he's been, you know, lauded as this manager who's who's kept unfashionable Burnley in the Premier League for such a long time. When they go down, is it? Does anyone want to touch him anymore? Is he or is he just, you know, does that ruin his reputation completely? You're right because where's the progression? Because if you're signing him yeah. as a long-term manager, you think, well, he's going to sort of keep us up, and then will go down, I guess. I, 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 he hasn't really been given a, a huge amount of money, I'd say. He is, you know, every press conference I see with him is, oh, shoestring this, shoestring that. I'm thinking, you've been in the Premier League for seven years. That's at least 700 million in TV money. How are you on a shoestring still? Maybe not that much, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I know, it, it, that, the, the situation there confuses me a little bit, especially if they go down. I can see um, Maxwell Cornet has been brilliant for them leaving. There's no way a guy like that plays in the Championship. No way. Mm. Um, next up, Leicester against Brighton. We've got a return of one of Dan's favourites here. Brenda Rogers said, we get the goal early in the second half and we didn't keep the ball well enough. We couldn't keep possession. This this literally sums up their last two minutes against Tottenham as well. They lose the ball <laughs> in two late goals and they've done it again against Brighton. A full credit to Brighton. I think they're a very good side. But dropping points at home from winning positions... Is not what Leicester are about this season. I'm as seeing as you're with us, Dan. I thought you'd be kind enough to get your Brendan Rodgers fraudometer out and let us know the reading. <laughs> the, genius the or fraud? Is, the needle is wobbling massively between genius and fraud at the moment. I, I don't know which which side it's going to land on, but yeah, I was thinking about, a bit about Rodgers after that Spurs game actually, and he's he's always now going to have this sort of bottle job tag isn't he after after losing the title with Liverpool after you know Leicester dropping out the top four at the end of the season a couple of successive seasons I think he's a really good manager and I think he is probably the best club that you could possibly hope to be at I don't think he's he's good enough to manage one of the the top six clubs you know a club he wants to win the Premier League I would be very disappointed if, if City went for him after Guardiola leaves for example but I don't think Leicester can really expect to get a better manager than him I think he's going to keep them kind of in and around the top six for as long as he's there. They'll challenge for the FA Cup or the League Cup now and again. They'll have a little go in the Europa League every now and again. Like, what more do, they, what more do you expect, really? And I think <laughs> it's a, that sounds like a very depressing marriage of convenience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. That's it for yeah. eternity. <laughs> That's reality for a lot of couples, isn't it? So... <laughs> This is your limit. Don't yeah, try yeah, harder. Yeah, yeah. yeah the <laughs> grass is not always greener on the other side. Yeah, yeah. I, the, I, the, gro- the grass is greener on the other side. You're just not allowed to go yeah. and play over there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I actually think he, he'll be gone soon from Leicester. Whether they, whether they see a downgrade, obviously, as you said, we've got a lot of football left to be played, but from pushing the top four for a couple of years to finishing, I don't know, 10th or 9th, he might go. I think they'll do very well to get a better manager than him, though. That yeah, I reckon they'll end up at Tottenham. Worry. That is, yeah. If if Conte isn't backed and he leaves, I think that's his last sort of shot at a slightly bigger club. I'd say, um, I, I can see that fitting, especially if he's not at Leicester. Um, but yeah, like I said before, Danny Welbeck getting on the score sheet and Brighton coming away with a point. Uh, that was all from the Premier League football over the weekend. But of course, we are not done yet. 
the transfer window is still among us. There was one that was going around over the weekend, a rumour about Tangi and Dombele leaving Spurs. Um, I think this was sort of been thrown in with the Los Celso and Deli Alley rumours, especially as all three of them weren't in the squad for the Chelsea game. Um, and Dombele to PSG is one that's been talked about a lot. 100% of the wages Spurs want to be paid during the duration of the loan. There's talk of Gino Wijnaldum coming in the opposite direction. Can you see this happening, Lewis? I mean, what is it about a very good team like PSG who see Ndombele struggling at a club that's worse off than them that still makes him an attractive proposition? Uh, I think the idea, surely, is that Tango Ndombele is a better footballer than we've seen during his time at Tottenham. And I think we've seen glimpses of it, um, and you'll know that you know better than yeah, us yeah. that. Um, you do see moments and you think there's a hell of a player trapped inside there that just... He he doesn't manage to dig out often enough for, you know, he'll he'll play well in a game, but then there'll just be one or two really costly moments in that game, loss of concentration or things like that. I don't think Spurs have got the best out of him largely because I don't think they've played him in the right position. I think he's played way too far upfield. And for me, he's a midfielder that you want, like, carrying the ball out of defence and linking sort of the that back third of the pitch to the rest of the pitch. Whereas Spurs, even this season, especially before uh, Conte arrived, you'd see him sort of playing as a number 10 half the time. And it just didn't seem to me to suit him at all. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if you know how much Maurizio Pochettino had his hands in, in the deal that saw Ndombele move to Spurs in the first place. And if he sees a, a player there that maybe the rest of us haven't seen so far at Spurs. Well, I think it very much fits into the Pochettino system. You saw how Moussa Dembele was brilliant mm. for Tottenham. Uh, they sold him in the summer, just uh, uh, sorry, in the January of 2019, just before the second half of the season, saw them reach the Champions League final. And I think, like you mentioned there, the way that Ndombele is able to withstand pressure and basically beat the press is, is exactly what Moussa Dembele did at Tottenham. And it made sense that Pochettino saw it, thought I'm going to directly replace one type of player with another. And he likes the sort of players and they fit into his system. And I can see why he'd want him at PSG. Um, the thing that annoys me a little bit about this, I think, is this. There's the rhetoric of, oh, he's going to be happier in France. You know, he's friends with Mbappe and Mbappe's there. C can we really use this as an excuse? Like, I just want to go and play with my mates. I mean, imagine me at school being like, oh, I'm not going to do work unless you sit me next to my friend. Like, it's, <laughs> I mean, I mean. lastly, my last suggestion is if they're that best buddies, why don't Mbappe come to Spurs? That's my alternate, <laughs> alternate universe. <laughs> this, you know the answer to that yeah. one, don't you? <laughs> I, just, I don't quite get it that the thought of Ndombele going to PSG and being like, oh, so much happier now. I just play my football. Yeah. Really sit right well, Mbappe is probably going to leave in the summer anyway, isn't he? And, and Pochettino yeah. probably going to leave in the summer yeah. as well. So yeah. Oh yeah, the rumours of Dan's coming in. This is the the latest on the rumour mills of Dan to PSG. Mm. Who knows? Maybe Ndombele will just follow Mbappe around wherever he goes. Um, the next one is Aston Villa approaching Juventus in a bid to sign Rodrigo Bentacor. Now I know we spoke recently. Steven Gerrard makes another ambitious move. There's a lot of talk about the pull that he has to the club, Dan. But this is a bit ridiculous. I mean, we can't have Aston Villa ringing up Juventus and going, I know what you're thinking, right? But guess who our manager is? Steven <laughs> Gerrard. <laughs> and suddenly everyone's like, oh yeah, go on then. Surely not. <laughs> have you watched Juventus lately though? They are pretty bad. I know they are pretty bad. <laughs> and I know that Bentecourt isn't a bona fide yeah. starter, you know, certainly if Rabiot and McKennie are, are fit. But really? 
this is mm. this is ballsy even by Aston Villa standards. Apparently, Luis Suarez has in uh, recommended him to Gerard, hasn't he? So oh, it's a bit of a sort of okay. jobs for the boys kind yeah. of scenario thing. And Luis Suarez himself might be one of those boys who's getting yeah. a, a job at Aston Villa if rumours are believed in. You talk about wanting to play for your mate, play yeah, yeah. for or with your mates. Luis Suarez is now suggesting which players Aston Villa should sign before what he arrives in the yeah, summer. Then. He, does he get like a consultancy fee for this? You know, when you recommend someone at work and you get a bit it, of money. It's probably illegal, so <laughs> I would hope not. But yeah, <laughs> if not, it should be. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd, if, if I was Rodrigo Bentancourt, I'd be probably looking at uh, opportunities to play in the Premier League under a legendary player, win a club, a big club that's going places, that's signing some interesting players, that plays a nice brand of football that in the next couple of years could be, you know, pushing the top six of the league. I'd, I'd go for it, personally. I don't, I don't see why that's such a crazy crazy idea at this moment in, in, in time. I just think the idea of... Someone someone actually uh, mentioned this with the Kieran Trippier deal, saying he's moved from the Liga champions, I think it might have been you, Dan, to 19th in the Premier League, is the equivalent of João Cancelo going to Cadiz in La Liga. <laughs> so, so the idea of someone leaving sort of, you know, Man United to go to mid-table yeah. Italy... It just, yeah, it doesn't quite sit right with me. If Cadiz offered to, to uh, triple Cancelo's wages, then <laughs> yeah, maybe as well. It as well, yeah. <laughs> and then pay a bit of money on top of that. Christ, what yeah. has the Premier League become? Right, that is, um, we'll move on to the hot topics, actually, away from the transfer window. I'm sure there'll be lots more discussion on it um, next week, actually, as we come to the end of the transfer window. There's two bits in, in the hot topics this week. We'll start actually with the one that's slightly more sensible before we get onto the ridiculous stuff. Um, an Englishman abroad. This was actually a topic I had with Kieran Trippier in mind. He is obviously back within the borders of the UK. Um, but I just thought we'd take a look at a few Englishmen who are applying their trade outside of English football. We have Tammy Abraham this week. A couple of goals this weekend for Roma against Empoli in a 4-2 victory. That's 10 for the season in, in Syria, double the amount that Lukaku has at Chelsea. And 17 in all competitions and arguably a worse offside than Chelsea. I think definitely a worse offside than Chelsea. Is this another one that Chelsea are going to regret in the sort of Salah and Kevin De Bruyne vein? Um, have they been drawn in too easily by the thought of splashing the cash and going for the big name in Lukaku when the answer that they needed was was actually there all along, Dan? I don't know about that so much. I don't think they're going to regret it as much as they regret letting Salah and De Bruyne go. Um, I think Tammy Abraham is a very good footballer who is flourishing at Roma. And um, it's good to see that. It's always good to see when a player leaves um, a club that they were quite tied to and and probably you know really wanted to be a success there and go and try something else especially when they they move abroad English players I think it's all, it's always good to see that um, I think Chelsea bringing in Lukaku was the right decision at the time definitely I don't think anyone had any arguments about that and I think it's not gone brilliantly so far and we'll see how that that pans out um, I mean I don't think Tuchel was a big fan of Abraham was he really he wasn't getting much time playing time under him so I just think it's worked out quite well for both parties, really. Chelsea got a decent amount of money for Abraham. He's having a great time in Roma. Um, they've got a you know, very good replacement for him in Lukaku, who hasn't performed as was expected, but but could still go on and, and have a big impact uh, this season, either in the Premier League or in the Champions League. So, yeah, I don't think they have too many regrets. It's just one of those things. You can't you can't keep everyone, can you? You have to, Players want to play. They want to be kept happy, and, and Abraham's getting... Getting that at Roma, so good for him. Do you think this is something we should see a bit more of, though? Because I'm looking at 
Kieran Trippier, for example, left Spurs, went abroad, won the La Liga title. Uh, Jadon Sancho certainly looked happier at Dortmund than he ever has at Manchester United. Uh, is it maybe something that players should look at moving abroad as a career option rather than just something for a few years, Lewis? Because it always seems to me that English players move abroad with under the impression that they'll be back in a few years, that the Premier League will, will draw them home eventually. I guess I guess there's two sides. It's on the one hand you do have the the money and the sort of career prospects. If, if Tammy Abraham gets offered the chance to return and play for one of the teams, one of the top teams in England, then it's just a bigger draw, especially for someone who's grown up in England. Then you know the same the way that we saw Ferran Torres go back to Barcelona or go to Barcelona mm. back to Spain from Manchester City. I think there's there is sort of a, a history, a romance, if you like that surrounding those big clubs where you grow up and you grow up watching them and seeing them win titles or see the big names that play for them. I So I don't think it's... And I, I wonder a little bit as well if Tammy Abraham moved to Roma knowing that if he does really well there, then that move is on. That move to sort of, a, a, I don't know, an Arsenal or a Tottenham or back to Chelsea straight into the first team. That move is sort of there and possible. Liverpool are going to need a striker within the next couple of years. So I wonder if he moved with that in mind already. I personally, I'd like to just see more of that. Players not going to sign for Brighton and Aston Villa and like no disrespect to those clubs, Southampton or Leicester, but going to like a massive European team in Germany, in Italy or in Spain and proving themselves there before trying to make that sort of jump to the top teams in England. I think that's personally just as a fan, it's a lot more interesting to see and to watch. I, I don't begrudge any like Trippier, uh, the money comes into it, but also just moving back close to home. And I, I don't begrudge any footballers that, especially when you think of now the last two years the way things have been for people who haven't been near their home and near their families so I, I do understand why Trippier would move back from from Madrid and to, to northern England I don't think that's a strange choice as mm. much as it looks just when you look at the two clubs and the league table but I also think Kieran Trippier would probably advise any England player or any English player who has the chance to move to one of those clubs to absolutely go for it. Yeah. I think that's the surprise to me more that we haven't seen more players make that leap in their career. There's no way that there hasn't been interest in England players over the past 10 years from, from some of Europe's top clubs or even players a bit further down the sort of food chain to go and go to a Roma or go to a mid-table team even in Spain or in Italy and sort of earn their stripes and prove themselves and take on that challenge. I think it's a shame that that hasn't happened a bit more often. I think it's really, really nice now to see more and more English players, especially younger players, making that move. Well, I think Roma are really setting the standards of Chris Smalling's in there as well. Ainsley Maitland-Niles is on the loan uh, at the end of the season. I think, uh, I know, I think, is it Aaron Hickey, the, the Scottish guy who's at Bologna? Yeah, yeah. As well, made, made a pretty... pretty I wouldn't say daring move, but certainly left a field move. But yeah, more more power to Joe Hart. That the trend, by the way, <laughs> for going to Italy. <laughs> was it Torino? Was it he? Torino, was it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Alone. It, it is funny though because I remember sort of like you know growing up, it was pretty much unheard of that. Oh, absolutely. Play abroad, you had the odd high-profile example: David Becker, Michael Owen, Jonathan Woodgate, those sort of players. But it didn't happen very much. I think probably if anyone set the trend, it was probably Jaden Sancho. In recent years, I feel like he has kind of kicked off this openness of, of young English players to yeah, want to go and play abroad. I, I think that's the difference because there is a big difference between 
taking a young, being young and taking a risk of going to Dortmund and then getting attracted by Real Madrid. I mean, it doesn't matter which country Real Madrid are in. If you're Woodgate or Owen or Beckham, you're moving. The same thing a bit earlier, you know, with players moving. I think it was, who was uh, Mark Hughes at Bayern Munich or something like that. You know, if you're moving to a massive side, I think it's a bit different. But you're right, that Jaden Sancho doing that and then proving that you can come back, you can learn, I think it's great. I think it's really, it's a really good move for young English players. Um, right, the next hot topic, something a little bit odd, something a bit left of field, maybe akin to a move abroad. Um, this actually arose from a conversation I was having at the weekend about contract clauses, because we are in the transfer window. What is the weirdest contract clause you've ever heard of? Dan, do you want to go first? <laughs> go on, Dan. I, I, well, I, yeah, go on. I, I had to look this up because I, I, I couldn't remember if I was imagining it or not, but uh, Stefan Schwartz, do you remember this one? This was the one that I had. He mo- he mo- <laughs> was it? <Yeah. laughs> he, moved from, uh, he moved to Sunderland in uh, late 90s and they put a clause in his contract that he couldn't go into space <laughs> because he'd had some sort of like, like his, his agent or something had got um, tickets for one of the first commercial flights into space via NASA or something and they thought that Schwartz might be interested in it so they said like no we're going to put a clause in your contract that you can't go into space I, I don't th- think that's being beaten is it that one, th- really? this was it this this is what I heard of and I couldn't believe it and I thought surely that's not true and I did that was <laughs> it it was in 99 when he signed and the um the clause was that his contract was nullified should he leave the planet <laughs> was the fantastic wording and I thought this is amazing um yeah so there were quite a few wacky ones what have you got Lewis that was that was the first one I was going to go for I did also because you sort of gave us a, a little heads up that this question would be coming our way mm. I did have a little look around there was a, a midfielder from Congo uh Rolf Christel Green who joined Eintracht Frankfurt in 1999 and as part of his contract, arranged with the club that they would put on cooking courses for his wife, which <laughs> I would like to think is a clause that in this day and age you wouldn't see. Um, yeah, I... Just to give her something to do, or did she want to be I, a chef, or...? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Uh, Just is what it your is. Your guess is yeah. good as mine. Uh <laughs> I guess he wasn't happy with her cooking. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, not is... not good. Not not a very modern contract clause, but um, no. quite yeah, a while back, I one. assume. There was that I yeah, read. Yeah. I read another one. I think it was definitely in Germany about a player who um, who wanted a property. Who wanted a house built for him for each year of his contract. Um, I think it was Bielefeld, and. Um, but he didn't specify what kind of property. So every year the club built him a tiny Lego house. And uh, <laughs> he had to make do with that. Uh, wow. uh, yeah, and, and uh, a more recent one was Roberto Firmino after this whole debacle of Arsenal bidding 40 million plus one for Suarez. Um, when Liverpool signed the next strike in Roberto Firmino, they included a buyout clause of 98 million pounds for every team apart from Arsenal. So that, that clause does not <laughs> exist for Arsenal. So any other team can buy Firmino for £98 million if, you, if, uh, if they felt so inclined to. Uh, we'll finish up, though, with our question of the week. And this is another, this is an interesting one this week. So friend of the podcast, Dan Cohen, he was the one um, bleating on about Emmanuel Dennis being Watford's saviour. Hasn't quite turned out like that the last few weeks. Uh, he got in touch with a story about a former Manchester United player currently playing where Dan lives in Charlotte in North Carolina. 
over over stateside. Um, he told me who the player was, but I thought I'd read out his career path to you two and see if you could guess who it is. So um, we start off with Bordeaux. Three years at Bordeaux, including a lone move to Lorient. Uh, you, you might get it quite quickly. Next came a big yet ill-fated spell at Manchester United, followed by five years at Newcastle, a year at Anzi Machakala in Russia, a uh, short spell at Wigan before a couple of years at Levski Sofia and BB Azurum Sport in Turkey before finally last August ending up with Charlotte Independence. I see you two nodding. Do you know who it is? Are we allowed to say? Yeah, go on, Dan. Uh, Gabriel Obertan. It is. is it? Gabriel Obertan yeah. turning out in the third <laughs> the third division of football in America. The third division, so two below the that's, MLS. That's his level, I think, isn't it? Yeah. That is his level. Is one of he. Was, I, re- I read an article. He was one of nine failed players. Um, so one of nine players who were quote unquote the next Ronaldo for Manchester United, and all of them just couldn't handle. I'm surprised it was only nine. Yeah, <laughs> couldn't handle that. Interestingly, after I saw this, I went on their club website, and they have another former Premier League player in their midst, fellow Frenchman and former Newcastle teammate, Sylvain Marveau. Do you remember him? Oh, yeah. Remember him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so, yeah. Marveau and Obertan serving up a few treats at Charlotte Independence. So, if you're in the North Carolina area, get yourself down for some <laughs> former Premier League quality. Uh, so, thank you very much for that, Dan. Of course, you can send in all your weird and wonderful football facts from around the world and questions and all sorts. Um to me on Twitter at Matt underscore Frolic or at OneFootball as well. You can also drop us an email with any other questions, suggestions or feedback you may have. The address is podcast at OneFootball.com. So that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests as always. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed listening and we'll be back again next week. So see you then. Hold up. 